Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Ralph Schoenher, co-founder of Meatleaf, a first-of-its-kind robotic platform for indoor and greenhouse cultivation environments, helping to sustainably produce more and optimize yields at higher quality and lower cost. Thanks for coming on the show today, Ralph. Hi, Elaine. Thanks for having me. So you spent the majority of your career working on robotics and automation. As a kid, did you always love to build things? Yeah, actually, I did. Right. So I think I was um, I was always one of the kids who would, you know, prefer to, you know, work on something that would then turn into something moving. So I think for me, I always felt like it's easier for me to identify with a product that has sort of like a physical attribute, right? That's something that actually turns into something moving. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've definitely considered myself a kid who was building a lot of stuff. I was always the same. I always wanted to be able to control the environment. So being able to use your hands and build something that then could move and grab things was always very satisfying to me. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. It's kind of fascinating when something actually starts moving and does something useful. Like I find that incredibly rewarding. There's a uh, toy called Capsella, which I used to use as a kid. And most people don't know about this, but you could build really cool, very simple robotics for kids. So that's always been one that I, I hope it comes back or I hope there's a, a better equivalent out there th- these days. Yeah, yeah, I hope. I, I mean, honestly, I think kids should definitely spend their time creating things, right? The earlier, the better. And robotics is, is an incredibly cool field where you can do a lot of this. Well, tell us a little bit about your history in robotics. You've had quite a few stints at different places, but would love to hear more there. Sure, absolutely. Um, so interestingly enough, I I first studied business, right? So I studied business, and then I ended up realizing that I like math a lot. Um, so um, did my graduate studies around statistics and math, and then gravitated into robotics from there. So which means that I ended up going into industrial automation, spent many years in the robotics space around industrial automation there um, at BMW. Um, you know, it's interesting to me, I, when I left, you know, sort of like my graduate school, I was essentially ready for real world problems, right? I wanted to work on something, you know, solve a real world problem and, and apply sort of like going away from academia. A um, couple of years into my career in the industry, um, I saw a couple of challenges specifically around like the ramp up curves of industrial automation and equipment um, that essentially inspired me to somewhat go back to school. So I ended up doing um, my PhD in parallel to my full-time employment around the idea of applying machine learning for robotics. Um, It was definitely a a time of my life where I ended up spending a lot of my weekends working and, you know, reading papers. But, you know, it took me a long time. It ultimately turned out well. Um, And I think everything has a reason Um, because ultimately also the combination of sort of that exposure to real-world robotics and automation. And in the end, I was heading innovative automation for BMW Worldwide. Plus, my background in machine learning made me interesting to Google, I was told at least. So they reached out, convinced me to move out here to the Silicon Valley, where I was working um, in robotics at Google X and um, did that for a couple of years. Um, 
And, you know, there was this, this inner voice that kept getting louder um, that ultimately inspired me, you know, to take off and, and start to build Needleaf. Um, and you know, that, inner, that inner voice actually is ultimately coming from a time early in my life when I was a child. Um, I grew up having an incredible relationship with my granddad, um, and he was a professor in entomology. So picture me being six or seven years old, and, you know, he would drag me into my grandmother's rose garden and, and show me what, what aphids are and how they're protected by ants. And I would spend my summers with him in the woods collecting, you know, forest pests. And back in the days, you know, before the internet, like tracking him down in a book and understanding what it is. And I had a little, you know, box of insects that we had collected hanging above my bed. So it's always been like a really dear part of my life. And I, I always had this sort of like inner voice and the desire to ultimately find a way how I could apply the skills that I had acquired over the last decades, you know, in machine learning and in robotics into the space. And that's ultimately you know, what we ended up doing with Neatleaf. That's a really cool full circle story. We'll get to Neatleaf, but I want to go back to BMW. What was some of the hardest problems you were working on or most interesting problem you were working on at BMW? So I think the one of the, the major challenges that I saw was how difficult it actually is to automate assembly processes, right? Anything like we're... Where, you know, humans are incredible if it comes down to a diversity of skills, specifically anything that's related to manipulation. And, you know, it's, we see that sometimes in the robotic space, there's videos online of like robots doing certain things, but they do it once, right? Um, so you can, you can certainly teach a machine to do something. It's really, really difficult to get the machine to do it reliably, right? To do it like 24 7, 360, 365 days a year. Um, and that's, I think, where, where it's getting, you know, where the, the majority of the challenges are actually lie, right? Like to do an actual manipulation process or like something that we're incredibly well as, as a human to do and then do it reliably um, in that space, right? This is a, a certainly where I see also like a lot of the machine learning applications ultimately will go and help probably to solve some of those challenges. What time scale do you think we're looking at when a robot will be able to do that repetitive task reliably? You know, honestly, it comes down to constraining the problem space, right? So we, I think, you know, even when I was working at BMW, there were a couple of processes that were really, really hard to do for an automated system, but we found a way for it to do it ultimately reliable, right, um, in constraining the problem space. So I don't think there's like, it's going to be that one point in time, but what I believe is what we're going to see is, you know, the skills will, will advance slowly over time, right? There's a lot of things that are really, really difficult, but, you know, you know, with millennials, you know, coming out of like schools and like looking into the spaces and driving the adoption, you know, of like digital technologies, um, it'll grow over time, right? Um, so I wouldn't say there's one particular point in time where we'll have all of it, um, but it's also not something we're going to have in a year or two, right? So there's a lot of difficult challenges and it will take time for us to solve this. I've been thinking a lot about recently how we're starting to see some knowledge work really parallel what we see in more automation and manufacturing of physical goods, you have the humans whose role is to feed inputs into the machines to make sure the machines continue their path and process and then troubleshoot when things go wrong. And now with things like no-code solutions, robotic process automation, a lot of that, knowledge work really becomes that same thing. You feed the machine some inputs, you make sure it goes along its path, and then you troubleshoot. So it'll be interesting to see which one happens first, where the machines truly replace the human. Exactly, exactly. And I think, honestly, there is this, um, 
there's this whole area of research where we're actually, you know, like human in the loop learning, where we're actually learning from the way how we're doing things as a human being and then translating that to actually allow a machine to learn quicker and better, right? And that's a super exciting field as well because we're actually coming from, you know, an incredibly optimized, you know, organism, right? Like we, we learn, you know, how to do things for like our entirety of our lifetime, right? And we, we constantly self-optimizing us and like everything we're doing on a daily basis. And we're doing the same thing, you know, as we're working in manufacturing, right? And taking that ability and trying to translate some of it into some technology that allows us to be more efficient and more creative, um, I think is a super exciting field. Yeah, I bet. Well, after you left BMW and went to Google X, you know, it's known as the, the moonshot factory. How did things operate there differently than a traditional company in a traditional org? You know, um, I think one of the, the major differences that I've seen is one of the mantras at X is to essentially start with the most difficult problem first, right? And that's something where I felt like at other organizations, you try to build, you know, the foundation and then you build on top, right? Whereas at X, it was all about how do you actually prove it can't be done, right? So you start with the most difficult thing. And as you're sort of like trying to prove that it cannot be done, you're actually getting to a point of just like, oh, there's actually the solution to it, right? So, and now let's start with the second most difficult thing, right? So you're actually, you're almost working, you know, your, your way down versus trying to build your way up. And in that regard, um, you're oftentimes getting to a point earlier where you realize, oh, this is actually unfeasible, right? And that's one of the major differences that I've definitely seen. That's really interesting because as a venture capitalist, you know, we expect entrepreneurs to pitch us the big vision, but tell us the wedge you're starting with. We're starting here and then we move here and it's a slow incremental growth to the hardest problems versus what you guys are doing. That's a very interesting way of operating. Yeah, I also think like it's it's the right way to do it if you pick incredibly large and audacious problems, right? If you're trying to solve these like major challenges for the world, you have to really figure out quickly if this can actually be done, right? Is there a technology out there that allows you to solve like these like major pain points for mankind? And it wouldn't work if you spend like many years just building that foundation and then like with, you know, a lot of like time investment and money put into this realizing a couple of years down the road, oh, but here's a missing puzzle piece, right? That's, I think, essentially where a lot of this approach comes from. Do you think it needs a structure like a Google that also has huge and deep pockets to operate like that, to be able to take those big swings and start at the end state? I mean, I think to some extent, it's a little bit of yes and no. I mean, I I, I love the fact that, you know, it, def, it certainly requires resources, right? And you have, you're taking very big risks, right? You're like, a, there's, the likelihood of this going to work is low, right? And for a lot of organizations, that's really hard to do, right? You're trying to build something, you have an investment in time and money, and you're trying, it needs to turn into something, right? But then on the other hand, I think at a much smaller scale, I feel, you know, every organization can do something like this. And we're also trying to do that neatly, right? We're trying to, you know, ask ourselves the painful questions early on and like see if there's any major roadblocks and try to address them as early as possible, right? So I think it depends really on the scale, right? I think, yes, large organizations with deep pockets have the advantage of like they can afford a little bit more of it. But even on a small scale, you know, and that's just a couple of person startup um, can do something like this, um, according to their particular problem space. Well, you're definitely tackling one of the biggest challenges and the biggest pain points of the world right now with Neatleaf and our food supply and agriculture and how we grow things going forward. So tell us a little bit about what you're building and what was the problem statement that you kind of came up with at the beginning that you wanted to go address? Yeah. Um, so 
you know, as I, as I spoke about my desire to essentially wander off and, and see how, you know, we could apply more data-driven technologies into ag, um, you know, we started learning a lot about these like massive challenges that we're actually facing as mankind in terms of, you know, what agriculture has to deal with, right? In terms of sustainability, climate change, you know, the availability of healthy food and produce. Um, and, you know, I was, I was actually shocked when I learned that 80% of the world's water usage goes into agriculture today. We're, we're using 5 billion pounds of pesticides every year worldwide that goes into the soil. Um, and as a result, I mean, we lost already like a third of the world's arable farmland, right? So we're running out of space. And at the same time, only half of the population in the world has access to enough fruits and vegetables. We need to ramp up our production. I think we need to almost double it to just meet, you know, the growth of population over the next 15 to 20 years. And then on top of all of that, you see that, you know, cultivators and farmers are actually struggling to have expert labor available to do all this, right? So it's actually, you know, talking about unsexy and and, 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 and sexy for me personally, I mean, ag is one of the largest industries in the world. And it's probably one of the most important if we're talking about you know, how sustainable, like we are with our resources, you know, how much time we actually have, you know, to unscrew the things that we've done around climate change. And also, how do we actually provide, you know, a healthy diet to the world overall, right? So like all of this kind of like really got us fascinated. Um, So we started digging deeper and we learned, okay, there's multiple ways how to cultivate, right? There's multiple approaches, you know, you can grow outdoors in the fields, um, but you can also do it in so-called, you know, controlled environment agriculture's um, environments, which is essentially, there's th- three sub- subcategories of that. Um, the simplest way is those outdoor tunnels called hoop houses. You've probably seen that, right, when you're driving by, um, which is oftentimes just like the simplest form. You protect the crop from some sort of like environmental factors, you know, the sun, too much temperature. Um, and then there's glass houses, greenhouses, where essentially you control most of the environmental factors. Um, but you also take advantage of the sunlight and then there's indoor cultivation, which is oftentimes something like, you know, like a larger scale warehouse where you actually control everything, right? You don't even have natural light. You have artificial light that replaces the sunlight. And um, as we started digging into the space, what we were able to see is that, you know, moving crops in these more controlled environments, we can actually, and then ultimately apply artificial intelligence to produce much higher outcomes and a higher quality while using a fraction of the resources. You know, like greenhouse cultivation, for example, can be up to 90% more water efficient than, you know, compared to outdoor cultivation. Um, wow. So there's this huge opportunity for us to grow essentially better crops, um, closer also to areas where we want them to be, because that's the second part of the challenge. And I think we did, we, a lot of us felt that during COVID, right? When, when some of the grocery shelves started to be empty, we also sort of like constructed this very fragile supply chain and we're shipping, you know, produce, you know, from countries and like from continents to, to other continents. And ultimately, um, you know, when you think about the carbon footprint, that is not very sustainable either, right? But there's this opportunity for us to grow more closer um, and be a lot more efficient and in that way also buy us more time to ultimately, you know, have the time to address some of the challenges. It's interesting listening to you talk. I never really thought about how central agriculture is to some of the largest industries in the world. It affects healthcare and health outcomes. It clearly has a massive implication on climate change and sustainability. And then to your point of supply chain, it really sits at the center of all these different pieces. And I think it's an interesting space to tackle. 
The one question that immediately comes to my mind, though, hearing you talk about the different options for indoor farming is, does that scale? How do you get to the scale that you need to feed and to solve the for the global population? Yeah, so that's that's an incredibly important question. So what what we've heard quite a bit is that, you know, in order to scale this to, you know, supply to the rest of the world, you need you need the structure, but you also need the knowledge. Right. And there is a limitation right now, specifically in the United States of like indoor, like controlled environment agriculture can only scale so fast because there's not enough knowledge available, you know, to run more of these facilities, right? And that's also, you know, what we're, we saw a huge opportunity with Needleaf to come in and ultimately not only collect an incredible amount of like large data and understanding of like how to actually grow more optimal outcomes, but also ultimately address the decision-making and allow the existing expert cultivators to be more efficient and essentially scale knowledge within the space. Are you seeing the same farmers who are adopting indoor farming to be the ones who ran the you know industrial farms that were outdoor farms, or is this a new crop of farmers? I did not even mean to use that pun, but yes, new crop of farmers. <laughs> there's, there's, there's so many possible puns, you know. Um, I, I that's what that's what I also like about the space. Um, you know, the it's a little bit of both, to be honest, right? There's there's cultivators who you know run out the farms and then they understand the opportunity and they go to grow in greenhouses, right? But there's also an entire new generation of people who really deeply care and see the opportunity in controlled environment agriculture. And, you know, it's an industry that is on the rise. I think it's currently growing at like a 20% growth rate year over year. Mm-hmm. So it's, it has a lot of momentum. And there are people in there who like come from other areas. They come from, you know, climate areas or solar industries. And they're like, they see the ability of us to really change and impact the world. And they go into controlled environment agriculture. But, you know, you find both. And that's really also really interesting because as we're interacting with our customer bases, it's a very diverse set of people and you know, very diverse set of perspectives. And what crops are most optimized for controlled environments today? And I guess, how do you see that changing over time? So nowadays, you know, we're already growing a lot of like fruit and vegetables indoors, you know, the typical tomatoes, the cucumbers, the peppers. So that's already happening at quite a large scale. Um, We see a lot on the fruit side to move more indoors, you know, has been proven that you can actually grow, you know, better quality, larger quantities while using less resources. You know, strawberries are examples, grapes. Um, there's also medicinal products that are grown indoors at large scale today, um, which is another part in thinking about healthcare and how to address that. Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll see there is a continuation of the trend specifically around, you know, a lot of these like consumable produce um, to move, to continue to move indoors. It'll certainly won't be the case with everything, right? There's like large commodity crops that will continue to be grown outdoors for like a lot of obvious reasons. Um, but it's definitely, it's an industry that is on the rise. And you were mentioning water consumption as one example of a, a massive decrease in need for uh, controlled environments. How does that work? Why do Why does a crop need so much more water outdoors than indoors? So one of the big challenges when you think about outdoors is you can't really control the environment, right? Like you don't have, you know, impact on, you know, how dry it gets, how much sun exposure do you have? And then also one of the very large challenges is 
How do you actually distribute, you know, the right amount of water at the right point in time? How do you ensure it's actually going towards the plant versus like, you know, been, been you know, drained in, in the wrong direction? You know, how much rain will there be at certain points in time? So the, the, the simple ability to essentially control those factors and actually really give the plant what it needs at the point in time when it needs it allows us to be a lot more efficient on the resources. Got it. Well, so you and your co-founder have really applied a lot of your robotics, automation, machine learning knowledge to the space. So talk to us a little bit about what Leaf actually does and how it works with these controlled environment farms. Absolutely. Um, so what, what we're building at Leaf really is, it's a platform that allows cultivators to, on the one hand, or, you know, we're generating data at a scale that's currently unseen in the industry. So what, what we're created is a technology that allows us to much better understand how a crop is currently performing, what input factors actually correlate to what output factors. And we're then translating that into insights for cultivators to make better decisions, but also into actions that ultimately to some extent will be taken over by our technology and, you know, with that towards more autonomous greenhouse and or like indoor cultivation. Um, and, you know, I, you know, when you think about it, like what cultivators actually do is it's, it's incredibly complex. So the two major tasks you're doing on a da daily basis is they're controlling, they're doing plant steering, which is essentially another word for they're adjusting the environmental factors to, you know, enable plant growth and, while doing that, they're actually controlling like 60 to 70 parameters in parallel every day, right? Every day they're coming in and they have to make these incredible, you know, complex decisions. And the, the my comparison to that is I'm a big fan, for example, I'm a big fan of Google Maps, right? I love the app because Google Maps ultimately allows me to make better decisions, right? There's a lot of like information on it. And that's essentially what we're doing with Needleaf to some extent, right? We're providing deeper insights. We're providing a much better understanding to help navigate that and then the second aspect that we're addressing is cultivators today have to spend a lot of time visually assessing the crop. There's no way to automate that. Like, how is the crop performing? Are there any issues? Are there any pests? Are there any diseases, viruses going on? And we're essentially, we're capturing that information with our platform, alerting them about any issues, but also allow them to take the right action whenever something like this arises. So prior to Neatleaf, were a lot of these cultivators doing most of this by just gut instinct and repetition? They've seen what works and what doesn't, and then they apply it next time? Yeah. And, you know, that's actually really where the knowledge, the, 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 the knowledge is one of the major challenges to address, right? So you have, you know, incredibly knowledgeable cultivators, but we talked to, you know, people in the controlled environment agricultural space. And they said, you know, I have this one facility that's running really well, but it's based on the experience, you know, of like the few people that I have, I want to build a second facility. And it's really hard for me to essentially, you know, transfer that institutional knowledge from one facility to another. Right. And this is also where we see that the, the platform that we're building allows, you know, the cultivators that we have to ultimately be a lot more efficient, you know, and have that knowledge available and ultimately help even with the decision-making to take the next step. Um, and one of the things, for example, is there's technology that allows us to, you know, even surpass our human capabilities in terms of understanding how plants are doing, you know, in terms of like visual assessment, the human eye is incredible, right? We can see well if like a plant's performing okay and if it's stressed or not, but there is this additional layer 
and possibility to actually understand that a plant is stressed before that even becomes visible to the human eye, right? And now we're actually getting to a point where we're surpassing even the most advanced experts in their ability to quickly act on any issues and ultimately grow happier plants, healthier foods, bigger outcomes while using less resources. That's a really interesting way of approaching it. I had actually met a founder of a different company called Interplant who was trying to take the opposite approach where they were genetically modifying the seeds so that when the plant had a specific stressor, it actually bioluminesced in a certain color. So you could see specific areas of your fields. And these are for the large scale industrial crops, but that involves genetically modifying the actual seeds, which a lot of people don't like. So you're actually able to do that just via technology, computer vision. So the, the fascinating thing of the approach is that you you really can ultimately grow a crop up to a certain specification just based on your data insight, right? So we don't have to genetically touch the crop to create a, a strawberry, you know, give with a certain defined chemical attribute or appearance. What we can actually do is we can just by understanding what input factors correlate to what outcome and then ultimately repeat and mimic those factors create essentially, you know, a strawberry up to your liking repetitively without the need to necessarily touch the genetics. And that that is incredibly exciting when you think about the perspective of what this actually means, you know, for the health of, you know, the people in the world. Absolutely. You know, I was fascinated when I first learned about FBN and how data-driven farmers actually are. I think growing up, if you're not in or around the agriculture industry, you typically don't think of farmers as being very sophisticated when it comes to data, but it's incredible how much they are. When you're giving them this data and inputs, are there any things that you've been able to find that have dramatically shifted the way that they cultivate? So when, when we present essentially the the existing capabilities today, um, we see an incredible amount of excitement because it addresses major pain points, right? So what, what what we're addressing with the platform is the ability to actually have, if you will, your eyes and ears everywhere at any point in time, right? So we can essentially generate you this, this full understanding of your entire cultivation space 24-7, right? And that certainly changes the way they're thinking about their ability to actually impact and grow better produce at a larger scale and at a higher quality, right? So you're certainly seeing like, and it's interesting, I, what, what fascinates me as we're, we're giving the product to our customers, they're actually start innovating on it and they're saying, so what about if I put this here, do I have the ability to also see that? That would help me, you know, to improve a certain process internally. So there's a lot of like these incremental like innovation that is happening on the customer side as we're giving them the technology at its current state. And is the vision in the end that you can create almost an autonomous greenhouse? So you can set up the sensors and the things you need and it will run itself. So the vision is a lot more autonomy in the space. And I think it is really important as, you know, I talked about, we have a very limited amount of like knowledge today available. And, you know, the, the skilled cultivators um, are a limitation for us to, to scale the industry worldwide. Um, we're definitely, you know, allowing for greenhouses or like indoor farms to be run more autonomously. Ultimately, what we're still doing though, is we're essentially allowing the humans that are there, the cultivators that have all this incredible knowledge to be a lot more efficient and also creative in their way to help us essentially find even better ways to grow more with less. What has been the hardest part of building the company over the last couple of years? 
Well, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges in, you know, creating a company like this. Specifically, I think we're in a space that historically has been proven a little harder to sell into, right? So there's some hesitancy in general, just like this is really going to work. Um, it's also a lot about, you know, establishing trust in general in ag, right? It's a lot about, you know, gaining hearts and minds. Um, and then in general, I think it, that's, that's very, I think, general advice for probably most of the startups is there's always going to be a point in time where things get really, really difficult and you have to find a way to continue, right? And that means things just like you have to control your burn rate, but you also have to find a way to stay motivated. And what I find fascinating is, and I talked to, to a couple of, of, you know, people in my network who successfully or not successfully founded and, and run companies is oftentimes the point in time when it feels like it's the hardest is very close to the point in time where you're making your biggest breakthroughs and you're, you're going to have your biggest wins, right? So I would say just like being able to navigate all of this together is probably one of the major challenges like we, we have to do on a daily basis. It's so true. And I'm laughing because I was debating when I was launching this podcast, I was going to do one of two things, what I'm currently doing with Unsexy, or I was going to launch one called Should Have Failed. And it was just talking about those times right before that big breakthrough where it should have died, the company, and how you right. got through it. Because I also find people don't talk about that enough. And it's true. Every company has at least three to 10 points in their life where they got to that bottom almost should have died, but then somehow came back like a phoenix. Right. And honestly, I think as a society, we should feel comfortable to talk a lot more about failures or almost failures, right? When you when you hear a lot of like people talking about, you know, the things that, that they have to share, they're also talking about, you know, the big challenges and how they solved it and all the wins. Um, I personally learn a lot more oftentimes from, you know, failure or like almost failure. So I think it's an actually super exciting you know, feel to talk about. And I think there's oftentimes even more things to learn from, you know, companies going through a really tough time. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, that actually leads me to the perfect place. I typically ask as a last question, if there's been a piece of advice you've been given in your life or your career that are really words you live by, it's stuck with you. So I think it, it, it's directly related to what I just said. Um, when I When I decided to start need leave with my co-founder i reached out to a couple of people in my network directly and said hey you know you've done you know you started a company and it went well or it didn't went well what's what's the one piece of advice that you would give me and and one person shared sort of like exactly that insight with me and it stuck with me it's like hey there will be a time when things get really difficult and it will be your job to push as hard as you can to overcome it because that's oftentimes the difference between the company being successful and not successful and I think that's something that I just, you know, keep spinning at the back of my head every time I'm like, you know, trying to go to work and be the best version of myself, specifically, you know, as we're tackling some major challenges as things sometimes get a little bit more difficult. But what I found so far is true is, yes, right behind that point often lies the big win, right? So this is, I think, the, the major thing. And again, like, sort of being repetitive on this, but I think that's really, that's really the one thing I'm trying to think about almost every day. I think it's worth repeating and probably worth putting as a big sticker above your desk or something, because I've seen many, many times how up and down startups are and just continuing to remind yourself that whenever it gets hard, the breakthrough is just coming on the other side. Exactly, exactly. And everybody, you know, who's, who's listening to this out, you know, um, out there, just that's that's the big advice. Like, just keep going, keep keep hustling, keep, you know, stay humble, but really try to to 
to continue to go on, right? And that has, there's so many aspects of this, right? What does it mean, right? Take only the smart risks, like make, make sure you're sort of like not running out of um, cash too early and also stay motivated, right? And, and find ways to, to keep your team motivated. Well, what you're doing is a very big swing and an important market. So we wish you very much success. If people want to learn more about you and Neatleaf, where should I point them? Uh, so it's www.neatleaf.com or you can find me on LinkedIn or Neatleaf um, as LinkedIn company page. Whatever you want to do, just reach out to us. More than happy to talk about this in detail. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Ralph. And I look forward to following Neatleaf. Well, thanks so much for having me, Elaine.